0: Today on the Joseph Carlson show, we're going to be talking about this man right here, whose name is Terry Smith. Terry Smith is a British investor. And in 2010 in London, he founded an investment firm called Fundsmith. Now over the past 11 years since he founded Fundsmith, it's grown to a huge size. He's now managing $26 billion. That's a lot of money that Terry's managing now. Now, of course, the reason the fund has been growing in asset center management is because of the astounding performance the fund has had since inception. Over this time period, the returns have almost doubled the benchmark. He's earned an annualized 18.6% return, while the benchmark, the MSCI World Index, has returned 12.9%. So both have done well, but Terry has done a lot better. And the accumulation of these annualized returns has led to a great outperformance. Since inception, Fundsmith has returned 570%, while the MSCI World Index has returned. Two hundred and eighty-seven percent. So, again, he's nearly doubled the returns of the world index. Now, I know what you're thinking. All right, that's great for Terry Smith. He's had great returns, but I can't possibly replicate his strategy. After all, he's probably some suave James Bond-like British guy that has some really advanced investing technique. Well, that's actually where you could be wrong. The simple truth is Terry's not doing anything that unique. At least not anything we can't replicate in our portfolios. In fact, I would say out of every investor that I follow, whether it be Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch, Bill Ackman, Charlie Munger, so on and so forth, Terry Smith may already have the investing thesis and strategy that most closely resembles the one that I'm currently doing. My strategy overall has been a focus predominantly on buying quality companies. I always preface the companies I talk about as high quality companies that I think will compound for a long period of time. Well, Terry Smith's investing strategy is incredibly similar. He says we continue to apply a simple three-step investment strategy. Buy good companies, don't overpay, and do nothing. It's really two steps if you take out the do nothing. He buys good companies, otherwise known as high quality companies, and he doesn't overpay. That's really the only two steps to his strategy. Now we're gonna be looking at this more in depth and what he defines as good companies, because there are some unique characteristics in what he defines as good companies that might be a little bit different than what I define. Either way, we're gonna go and try to learn from Terry Smith and see if we can find anything from his investment strategy that's led to such good performance that we can apply to ours. So with that said, we have a lot to jump into in this episode, we're gonna be looking over all of this. If you like this type of content, be sure to hit the thumbs up button, consider subscribing to the channel. I show my portfolio with real money every single week, week by week, and I'll do so all throughout 2022. So you'll see with complete transparency, How this whole thing turns out. Now, with my portfolio, I've always said that I wanna buy high quality companies that I think will compound for a long duration of time. And by high quality, I mean companies that have strong moats, they have great balance sheets, they have momentum with their growth and ample growth opportunity, and they earn a lot of cash. So much cash in some cases that they return it to the investor. There's some companies that I've called the highest quality companies in the world. Costco being one of them. I think that Costco is an incredibly high quality company. And I base that assessment on a lot of things. The brand value, the quality to consumers, the subscription business model, the consistent growing revenues, the consistent growing EBITDA, the massive amount of cash it's able to accumulate and generate, and the growing earnings over a long consistent time period and also the resilience of this company. It never really has a big downturn. Costco isn't the only high quality company that I've outlined. I've also talked about Disney, and Home Depot, and Target. I've talked about JP Morgan being what I consider to be one of the highest, if not the highest quality bank in the world. So business quality has always been, in my opinion, the number one thing that I look for when investing in a company. It's always first the qualities of the company, and then second Is the price right? Can I buy with this price? And that's why I found it a very pleasant surprise when reading through Fundsmith's letter and going through all the details of their performance and their stock picks to see the outline of their business strategy. It seemed to resemble mine very closely. Even though this is a simple outline to outperformance, it's actually more difficult than it seems to implement. Let's go ahead and go over each of these steps and let's start off with the buy good companies. Now, luckily for us, Terry Smith recently did a presentation explaining exactly this. What is a good company? What defines a good company? The first thing that he looks for in a good company and the first characteristic he thinks defines a good company is high returns on capital. And I know this is an investing term. It sounds a little highbrow and complicated, but let him actually explain this because he boils it down into a very understandable way. So this is Terry Smith explaining return on capital.
1: Why is this important? Companies are just like us. People overcomplicate analysis companies have a cost of capital and a return on capital uh, if they make a return above their cost of capital consistently then the value of the company grows over time if they make a return below their cost of capital consistently the value shrinks over time think of it in personal terms if you go out to your bank and borrow money at five percent and you invested in funds for the last decade at 18 percent you would have become more wealthy right? If you borrow from your bank at 5% and invested in somebody else's fund at 2% return, you would have become poorer. This is not, uh, we don't need to get into uh, higher
0: mathematics here. Even though return on capital can sound a little bit intimidating and complicated, it's a very simple concept. Money has a price attached to it. It almost always does. If you borrow money from a bank, it has an interest rate. If you raise money through selling shares, you're giving up part of your company. All of that has a price attached to it. And the question of whether or not a company is a good company or not, according to Terry, comes down to whether or not a company can take that money and they can pay that cost of capital and earn much higher returns on it. Can they earn really high returns on the capital they're given? Now, you might assume that every company has to do this. They have to earn good returns on capital. But that's not true. A lot of companies really don't earn good returns on capital. And Terry Smith explains how important this is.
1: This yes, um, quote from uh, Warren Buffett's uh, number two, Charlie Munger, uh, in many respects summarises why this is important. So, you know, I think I've given a similar explanation. Here's a slightly lengthier explanation. I don't know why he chooses this time period or these particular rates, but it doesn't matter. I'll just read it. Over the long term, it's hard for a stock to earn a much better return than the business which underlies it returns. It earns. If the business earns 6% on capital over 40 years, and you hold it for that 40 years, you're not going to make much different to a 6% return. Here's the punchline. Even if you originally buy it at a huge discount. Conversely, if a business earns 18% on capital over 20 or 30 years, even if you pay an expensive looking
0: price, you will end up with one hell of a result. He's telling us something here, which is very important. This quote from Charlie Munger is completely different than the majority of advice you get on YouTube. The advice on YouTube is to always be concerned with the price of an asset. That should be your primary concern, whether it's undervalued or overvalued. Well, Charlie Munger here is saying a quote that really defies that type of advice. He's pointing out that really what makes the difference is the earnings of the company over a long period of time. If the company earns 6% over 40 years, you're going to have a 6% return. It's going to follow the company even if you bought it expensive or cheap. And likewise, if the company earns 18% on its capital over 20 or 30 years, you're going to have around an 18% return. Whether or not you bought it at an expensive price or a cheap price. A great example of this very concept that Charlie Munger's talking about is Costco. For the past 20 years, for a very long period of time, the average rate of growth of Costco's earnings is right around 15%. It's 14.93%. That's how much the actual business grows its earnings year after year, around 15%. Well, wouldn't you know, over that same period of time, the average annual return of the stock has been 15% it's followed almost perfectly the actual earnings of the company. Investors can get fixated on the stock price. They're always looking at the stock price, whether there's little dips or spikes or drops or whether it's flat for a while, that's what they focus on. But over a long enough period of time, the earnings growth is really what's gonna decide your returns. And Terry Smith points out, this isn't just coincidental that they earn the same returns. This is mathematics. This is how investing works.
1: This is not a theory. He's not putting forward a theory of investment. It's a mathematical fact. Uh, It's important to realise that. And what he's telling you here is something like this. I wish I'd had a a diary that I'd kept from when I started in finance all those years ago. And that I put two columns in each day. And every time in the investment business, somebody asked me whether a, a company or a strategy was high quality, good, had high returns on capital, I would put a tick in one column. And every time they said, but is it cheap or expensive, I'd put a tick in that column. I would have... Far, far more ticks in the, is it cheap or expensive, problem. people spend almost their entire effort thinking about whether something's cheap or expensive, or highly rated or lowly rated, which I guess is a better way of expressing it. And far too little deciding whether it's a high grade business that they really want to own that can compound value.
0: I see this exact same problem in the investing community on YouTube and elsewhere. This is the most common thing that I see. The huge majority of investors are always looking for undervalued stocks, undervalued stocks, cheap stocks, stocks that have fallen in price. Is this one undervalued? Is that one undervalued? That is their primary focus. I'll get questions frequently on what stock is undervalued. Is it a good PE ratio? Does it have a good price to sales? Would you buy this company right now or this one? And they spend very little time focusing on the actual qualities of the company. Does it have a moat? Does it have a growth path, a flywheel? Does it have good returns on capital? Right, does it have good characteristics as an actual business? that will compound for a long duration of time. And I again, 100% agree with Terry Smith here. I think that investors are spending far too much time focused on the daily price fluctuations of companies than they are identifying and investing in high quality companies. Now, Terry moves on from explaining the return on capital to shifting to another thing somewhat related to it that he thinks is a big obstacle or impediment to a lot of companies looking to grow.
1: Return on capital is the single most important thing. There's no point in engaging in a business as low return. I haven't bothered today because we've got limited time, but we can show you a slide for the airline industry uh, which never makes an adequate return on capital and it is just a machine for losing money.
0: I agree with him on that. I will never invest in airlines unless their entire business model has some seismic shift because everything that I've observed with that business is harsh competition, very little moat and low returns on capital.
1: Once you've got adequate returns, you need to have a source of growth to enable you to reinvest. It's no good having a business that makes 25% return on capital but you can't sell any more of the product or service Nothing, nothing for them to deploy more capital into. They just have to give you the, the cash back, basically. So we look for companies that have got a source of growth for them to invest in.
0: So what he's talking about now is having a company that has access to new ways to grow. Of course we don't want a company that's limited in its capacity to reinvest capital back into the business. If they have to just take everything they earn and give it out to the shareholders either through share buybacks or dividends, that's not really a business we want. And Terry Smith understands this. He invests in companies that have secular growth opportunity. They have space to reinvest their capital and earn a good return on it.
1: Where does this growth come from? We look for a business that has a And a source of secular growth, not cyclical growth, not it goes up and it goes down. Everything has a bit of cyclicality, but we're looking for for companies which both at the peak and the trough of the business cycle are bigger than they were at previous uh, uh, parts of the business cycle that grow not in every reporting period or every year, but they do grow over time. And it typically comes from one or more of these things. consumerization of the developing world. Um, All the statistics on this are clear. When people in the developing world go past a certain level of disposable income they become consumers they're part of a developing economy they no longer spend all their time sourcing and preparing food they've got jobs in uh, in factories and call centers and all kinds of things like that they need the the benefits of consumerization and they, they aspire to become consumers as well uh, and so that's a very big driver um, uh, of the uh, of the growth for some companies um but in the developed world there's premiumisation. Uh, we may not be consuming more, mostly, but we consume better uh, over time. You know, we may not drink more. Uh, hopefully, most of us don't. But we might drink better quality. We might upgrade what we do. So, whatever it is we're talking about consuming, uh, there's quite a good chance that we will go up the curve in terms of uh, the brand of, uh, of goods that we're consuming over time and premiumise it. Aging populations. An awful lot of People look for growth in, in investment through young populations. In fact, that's part of the drive in the consumerization of the developing world. But ageing populations are pretty good, too. Ageing populations have increased consumption for uh, a number of things, and uh, not least forms of medical care. Uh, and, uh, and so yeah, ageing populations can be quite a big driver uh, of, of certain uh, uh, companies. Uh, white space. White space, as you probably know, is a term used by people in the marketing uh, and sales business, if they've got a map of, uh, of the world or a country or, or a territory, somewhere where they've got no representation, no cells, they colour white on the map, a white space. There's lots of white space around the world for people to grow into. I've given you three examples there. Eyes. And what do I mean by that? Something like two thirds of the world that needs vision correction doesn't currently have it. They don't currently have access to reading glasses and other forms of uh, vision correction. They will get it in time. Uh, and clearly that will be a source of growth to people like Essendon, like Zotica and so on who are in the business of manufacturing I- and, and retailing iClasses. Payments. Um, we're often asked whether we prefer Mastercard or Visa or, or PayPal or Square or Apple Pay or Google Pay or... or and, and the answer is, yeah, look, we've got a view on which one might be better than the other one and so on, but the reality is they'll probably all do pretty well, and the reason they'll all do pretty well is they've got an enormous white space to grow into. Something over 80% of the world's uh, volume of transactions is still done in cash, basically. It won't be. If we ask our grandchildren, if we describe to our grandchildren, oh, our grandchildren describe to their children, or uh, would have thought, that once upon a time we would... Uh, get some uh, some uh, uh, some material made from uh, 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 a pulp uh, of, uh, of juice, some of that, and and plastic, and turn it into this note. We'd have uh, uh, holograms on it and metal in it and engravings on it to make it difficult to uh, to um, uh, forge. Uh, and then we'd put it in armoured cars and transport it to banks, which would doll it out to us to go and spend in shops. We'd pay it back into shops. Uh, as pay it back into banks. And then that's how we'd get into the system They'll look at us rather quizzically, given that all they've got to do basically is walk up to a counter with their phone in their pocket and pay for something. Um, And that clearly is the future. Toothpaste, a bit like eyes. Um, Again, something like 60% of the world doesn't yet use toothbrushes and toothpaste uh, to clean their teeth. They will. As I am fond of saying on this one, if you want to have an intimate relationship with somebody who started cleaning their teeth, best you take it up. I think would be my way of looking at it. And so, you know, for people who are in this industry, like Colgate, there is a, clearly a very long runway for want of a better term ahead of them. And there are other trends which are just out there, which uh, which we alight upon. Um, just put a couple down there, pets. Uh, if I had to pick one area of secular growth, which appears to have a very, very long way ahead of it, it's spending on so-called companion animals or pets. Uh, pets, as any of you who got them will know, are on a journey to becoming full family members. Um, our spending on pets is, uh, is rising very rapidly. Um, I'll have to update this statistics. So I know that I'm a few years out of date, but uh, uh, in the year that I last looked, which was probably about five years ago now, time flies, Americans spent $10 billion per annum on diet pet food. Um, now, have a think about that for a moment. There are not very many pets that can open the cupboard. Uh, you could just try spending, giving them less to eat. But no, diet pet foods are what they buy. And of course, for diet, read really more expensive and higher margin um and so on and so forth um you know 40 percent of american adults live alone to them uh, particularly during things like the pandemic uh, a pet is is an important point of contact basically if you wanted a a cat or a dog in america during the, uh, the lockdown you would have had to have gone on a waiting list at a pound never mind at a breeder uh, to obtain that to obtain this testing is something we like as well people do more and more testing as time goes by is there horse meat in your burger um covid19 has obviously given it a bis- big boost as well uh, international trade so it, it leads to a lot of boosting of, uh, testing of commodities and goods and so on and sometimes these two things cross over one of our companies is the world leader in veterinary diagnostic testing equipment um testing pets is very important for two reasons one is i said they're on a journey like their human owners more and more of them are being given health care which is uh, as good as or even surpasses their human owners in terms of uh, what's spent on it. And the other thing is testing is more important for, uh, for pets than it is for the human animal for a very simple reason. They can't speak. It's no good asking them how they feel and where the pain is. Uh, So you have to do more testing to get an accurate diagnosis for pets.
0: So this gives us more insight into Terry's thinking. He doesn't only look for companies that earn high returns on capital, which defines the first thing of a good company, but also a good company has to have good growth opportunities. It can't be limited by secular trends. So he looks for secular growth with a company that can either grow in the developing world or in the developed world, in aging populations. He looks for different trends like eye care, payments, toothpaste, pets, and testing. These are all secular growth trends with very long runways. And you can probably come up with some other ones he hasn't talked about as well. The big thing here is he's not interested at all in companies that are in secular decline. The companies in a secular decline look elsewhere. Now, after returns on capital and secular growth opportunity, the last thing that he looks for is a moat. This is something that he probably gets from Buffett and Munger, but having a sustainable competitive advantage to prevent mean reversion. Let's go ahead and let him explain what he means by preventing mean reversion.
1: Uh, the so called moat, one other Warren Buffettism, he says great businesses not only have great returns and source of growth, they have a the moat that you get around the castle to protect them from this attack. What constitutes a moat? Brands are a pretty good moat. Um, uh, you know, strong brands can last indefinitely if you maintain them with marketing. Uh, with uh, advertising with promotion and with development and uh, you know you will pay more for a brand than a non-brand you you will pay more for a primary brand than you will for a tertiary brand Uh, control of distribution and supply chain it's not just brands if you come up with something new if you came up with a new vodka during the course of this call rather than listening to me um, well, great. Uh, but I'm not sure how you're going to get it in bars and, uh, and restaurants and shops, because the distribution is already controlled by people like Diageo and Pernod Ricard and Bacardi, who own things like Smirnoff and, uh, and Absolute uh, and so on. Uh, you know, this, this is already a great goose. These are these are people who have already got a very big control. Sometimes it's control of supply chain as well. If you want to compete with some of the modern dairy companies, particularly in the emerging world, people like Nestle and Danone. You're going to have to go and find your own dairy farms to convert the dairy farms and build the refrigerated supply chain and processing. And you're going to have to put your own fridges into the shops that hold this stuff. You can't put your, your goods into a Nestle fridge. So you know, that's good. Install bases of equipment or software. People who supply things and once they've supplied them, you are reliant upon them for maintenance, spares, service. And it's difficult to change in terms of equipment, things like elevators and escalators. Once you've bought a Kone or a Schindler or an Otis elevator escalator, 75% chance you'll sign the maintenance contract with it. That's where the real money is made. Uh, software, people who make software that goes into your computer to run your operating system or to run your uh, uh, conference call, like we've got now, people who make airline reservation software, uh, hotel reservation software, payroll processing software, et cetera, et cetera. Once you've got this stuff, it becomes very embedded very difficult to t- change and it gives you a, a tank client. And lastly, patents. Patents, obviously, to some degree, ward off competition. They're our least liked form of, of competitive advantage, actually, because they do expire. Obviously, patents uh, expire.
0: Now, investors define moat in all different various ways, but I think he boils it down to some of the most common attributes of a moat. Now, this next section of his presentation, I think, will be the most controversial section of this video. And that is because he makes A definitive statement here that quality of a business is more important than the price. And focusing on cheap businesses or seemingly undervalued companies has been a mistake in the past and will be a mistake in the future. And he doesn't only make this claim definitively, he has a lot of data, actual empirical data to back up this claim. Let him explain this chart here showing that the higher-priced businesses that are higher quality over longer periods of time consistently outperform cheap companies. And if you
1: look over on the, crane your head there, you can see, what does well? Pharmaceuticals, household and personal goods, software, media, commercial service, semiconductors, healthcare, food, consumer services. Mm, they're all pretty darn good, aren't they? Uh, what does badly over here? Well, we've got utilities, telecoms, transport, energy, materials, and retailing. Yeah. Uh, You know, they aren't suddenly going to turn around, basically. And as it says in the punchline at the bottom on the left there, being cheap or lowly rated doesn't isn't going to make a bad company become a good company. It may give you a short term opportunity, but it certainly doesn't give you a long term one.
0: Industries that earn low returns on capital like utility, telecom, transportation, energy and materials are probably going to earn low returns on capital in the future. They're not going to suddenly change. These returns on capital across industries have been stable across different decades of time. And then, in summary, he says quality is more important than valuation. That is the big statement that he's making here. Now, again, this might seem somewhat controversial to make these claims or even opinionated to say that quality is more important than price and quality is always best in the long term but it has nothing to do with opinion. This is based on the raw data. This is based on fact. Listen to him explain the actual data behind quality investments.
1: This is the MSCI uh, World uh, Index, and it takes uh, back to 1996, as you can see there. So we're dealing with uh, about 25 years here, and it takes the quality subsector of that index. So the companies that they define as high quality with high returns on capital, high profit margins, good cash conversion, and it compares it with the index. And you can see in any rolling 120 month period, so any 120 months, 10 years, in any rolling 12 period during this period, quality always outperforms the index. Now, quality is being slightly handicapped in this comparison, in my view, because of course the quality is still in the index that is being measured against. If you subtracted quality from the index, I don't have the data to do it because it's an MSCI calculation. This. Uh, this would be more extreme. It would be a more extreme outperformance and very probably for shorter periods as well. And I realize that that's a long period of time, but frankly, we are long-term investors. If you're not long-term investors, you are probably in the wrong fund.
0: So this chart illustrates the long-term outperformance of high-quality companies over their counterparts, over any given 120-month basis they've outperformed.
1: Uh, It's far better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price Than a fair company at a a wonderful price. As I said to you, I spent most of my working life listening to people asking me about whether something's cheap, whereas they should be
0: asking about how good it is. This quote from Buffett really does summarize his entire investing strategy, but I appreciate how in-depth he explains this and how he breaks it down. So I find Terry Smith to be a remarkable investor. He follows somewhat in the same path as Warren Buffett, focusing far more on the overall qualities of the business than the current price of it. In his last shareholder letter, he reemphasized this point yet again. He shares a chart that's just a remarkable chart, and it really proves this point. He says, the bar chart below may help illustrate this point. It shows the justified P.E. ratios of a number of stocks of the kind we invest in. What this chart shows is the price-to-earnings ratio, the P.E. ratio. You could have paid for these stocks in 1973 and achieved a 7% compound annual growth rate over the next 46 years. So all the way to 2019 versus the 6.2%, the MSCI World Index returned over the same period. In other words, you could have paid these prices for these stocks and beat the index, something the perfect market theorists would maintain you can't do. With L'Oreal, the cosmetic makeup company, back in 1973, it wasn't selling for a 281 PE ratio. But even if it was, even if that was the current price of the stock, you could have paid that and bought it at that point and still beat the overall index over the next 46 years. That shows the qualities of this company, that the price to earnings, whether it was a little bit cheap or expensive at this time, didn't really matter. The business performance is really what matters. The same thing from Altria Group. From 1973, you could have paid a 241 PE ratio, or Lint, a 230, Brown Foreman, a 174, Hershey's, you could have paid a 129 PE ratio for Hershey's, Colgate, you could have paid 126. Heineken, you could have paid 115. Pepsi, you could have paid 100 PE ratio. Kellogg's 70. Coca Cola, 63. And so on and so forth. So again, Terry's constantly re emphasizing this point to not make the PE ratio the primary thing that you look at and the only thing that you obsess over when you're investing in stocks. It should not be your primary concern. He goes on to highlight and also make clear that he doesn't like overpaying for businesses. He says, I'm not suggesting we will pay those multiples, but it puts the sloppy shorthand of high PEs equating to expensive stocks in perspective. I felt the exact same way with my portfolio. There's some companies that I'm willing to pay a little bit higher of a PE ratio for because I think the long compounding characteristics of the company will more than make up for it. Now, he also goes on to highlight that this type of investing leads to a do-nothing type of investing. Once you've made your buys into high-quality companies and you have decent positions, you can sit back and rest easy as those companies compound. And this leads to minimizing portfolio turnover, which for Fundsmith was just 5.6%, which is very low compared to a lot of other funds. Terry Smith has emphasized over and over again owning these high quality companies, holding them for a long term, doing nothing across different market cycles and having low turnover. And he does this despite all different types of market conditions. He really holds true to his strategy. Right now we have articles like this one from the Financial Times saying investors dash out of US tech stocks In a powerful market rotation we've all heard about the big market rotation the up and coming stocks the ones that are coming post pandemic right those are the ones everybody wants to move into now and in many cases investors are moving out of a lot of high quality companies well terry addresses this phenomenon in his letter he says turning to the themes which dominated 2021 you may have heard a lot of talk about the so-called rotation from quality stocks of the sort we seek to own the so-called value stocks, which in many cases is simply taken as equating to lowly rated companies. Somewhat related to this, there is a periodic excitement over so-called reopening stocks, which could be expected to benefit as when we emerge from the pandemic. So these are the reopening companies like airlines and the hospitality industry, for example. There are many problems with an approach which involves pursuing an investment in these stocks. Timing is obviously an issue. Another is that their share prices may already overanticipate the benefits of the so-called reopening. As Jim Chanos, the renowned short seller, observed, quote, the worst thing that can happen to a reopening stock is that we reopen it is often better to travel hopefully than to arrive so he points out the first thing with following the trend of moving to the reopening companies out of quality companies it's difficult to time and you don't know if the reopening effect is already being priced in but he goes on to highlight the bigger issue here in our view the biggest problem with any investment in low quality businesses is that on the whole, the return characteristics of the business persist. Good sectors and businesses remain good and poor businesses also have persistently poor returns. So even though we hear talk of a rotation happening, that you got to get out of good companies because interest rates are going up or the reopening plays happening, this creates an urgency with investors. You feel like you have to do something. The truth is you don't have to do anything. Terry Smith is not doing anything. He's not participating in this great rotation. He's not interested in it. And in fact, he thinks it's a bad strategy. And that's exactly what I'm doing with my portfolio. I'm doing nothing. I refuse to participate in a rotation out of high quality companies into the reopening companies because the media is urging me to. I'm not going to participate it. I'm going to do exactly as Terry Smith is doing and do nothing. So I hope you enjoyed this little look into Terry Smith and Funsmith, his firm. I think he's a great investor, very interesting to learn from, and definitely one to follow. If you enjoyed this type of video, make sure to subscribe to the channel, hit the thumbs up button so other people see it, and I'll catch you in the next episode.